Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala, and today I have with me my co-host, Jeff Mazzone. How are you, Jeff? Morning, Robert. What's going on, bro? Good, good morning. So we got a, uh, I don't know if I'd call it revenge um, or getting back at you or or what I would classify or maybe just a conversation. We'll keep it. We'll keep it there nice and friendly today right. um, for our listeners. It might just be be joining us for the first time. Uh, I don't know, Jeff, what was it? Uh, several months ago, probably now. Uh, yep. I had the opportunity to, to have you interview me and share a little bit of my story. And, and um, we're going to do the same for you today. And, and I think it's pretty cool that our listeners get the opportunity to, to learn more about who we are and how we got to this point in our journey. Sure. Um, and we they know a little bit about you from from our previous thirty three episodes. I think we've shared a little <laughs> bit about each other along the way, but I hope in today they get to to know you a little bit more, a little bit deeper, a little bit about your story, your journey, and and I've had the opportunity to listen and to be a part of that, and truly honored uh, to mm. be able to do this with you. So thanks for taking the time to do this today and just to to be vulnerable and share your story with us. It's it's very much appreciated and. Um, and I know it's encouraged me throughout this journey. So thank you for that. Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm happy to to do this. So we did this <clears throat> with you. Um, and, you know, I got to stay head to head, toe to toe with you on the vulnerability game. So, you know, why not? Um, yeah. And, and I think it's pretty cool to see as well as God has used both of our individual gifts and talents, because we certainly are not of the same mold. Um, but I think that's what creates a unique partnership. And so I am I'm really excited to kind of dig in today to learn a little bit more about you. And and I want to go kind of kind of right from the to the beginning. Um not the beginning, you know, not the heavens and earth beginning, of course, but um your beginning. Um sure. and I know there was a lot of um just hurt and pain kind of mm -hmm. starting your mm -hmm. your childhood. Can you just share a little bit about kind of the start of your journey? Yeah, so I think, yeah, you're right. You know, you and I, as we kind of know each other, we've alluded to things both <clears throat> on the show and obviously in our own conversations and us doing presentations with Dr. Imhoff on self-care for counselors and, and students. And, you know, it's usually been me telling my story as a client. Um, and I think, you know, the eclipse of it, if you kind of look at the horizon of the stories, is really just God's glory and, and goodness. Um, but, but a long journey. I mean, I'm 37 now, so there's still plenty of time. But uh, yeah, so I'm an only child. Uh, my parents met in the Navy. Uh, my dad was married to another woman when my parents met. They eventually uh, eloped, and I came around, and my parents' marriage was not good. Uh, not good. And uh, my dad left when I was about nine, and I've only seen him once since. Um, I've tried talking to him a couple of times and, uh, you know, he had a rough life. He had a rough life. Like for him, it was go to war, go to jail. Um, his dad was an abuser verbally, emotionally, physically, alcohol, just involved with a lot of, I guess like gang kind of stuff, kind of mafioso in, in Albany, New York. And, um, you know, the family suffered from that. And my dad needed to steal just to provide for the family uh, as a kid. It was getting arrested. And so when he was of age, it was, yeah, it was either you go to Vietnam or 
go to jail. So he joined the Navy. And uh, he was in the Navy for 29 years. He got out as a Master Chief. Um, he was an aviation electrician, which is interesting because I am not technical at all. <laughs> you wouldn't consider yourself an electrician by any means? No? No wiring? Not, no, 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 like no, 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 no. Mm -mm. <laughs> just, just don't touch it, right? Don't stick right, the fork in the yes, outlet. That's the extent exactly. of it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and my... Uh, my mom was a yeoman in the Navy, which is like a, a secretary, and she um, she would work for an admiral and captains. and um, So I, I seem to inherit more her skill set. <laughs> uh, is that where they met, in the Navy? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my mom's from Philadelphia, and uh, she entered the Navy at 18, and dad's from Albany. And they met uh, somewhere outside D.C. when they were both stationed in that area. So, uh, you know, I was born in outside Philadelphia. We moved to Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii for the first like four years of my life. Then we moved to Southern Maryland when I was in kindergarten and, uh, my dad retired there and I stayed in Southern Maryland after my dad left and, uh, graduated high school and moved to New York, uh, right out of there, which I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, you know, the thing was, is like, you know, when my dad left, mom, mom kind of hit rock bottom, you know? And I think as a little kid, I had to grow up really quickly. Uh, cause they're just me and mom, you know, mom was hurt and angry and betrayed. And, um, yeah, I saw a lot and heard a lot that, you know, I don't think any kid should, should see that. And, uh, how old so, were you? When what's you're, that? When you're, how old were you? I was nine. Okay. Yeah. So, between like nine and 11 was really difficult. And then I think it all caught up to me as I became a young adult. Like I knew it was all there. I just hadn't yet seen how it was impacting me, you know, relationships with, with women, relationships with male authority figures. And, you know, obviously we'll get into my story here. Like those are going to be significant issues for a young man sure. who's getting to be a priest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so let's 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 kind of maybe fast forward a little bit to right. talk about how you got into that journey to become a priest because that sure. was that was relatively right out of of high school, right? Yeah. So I entered the seminary right out of high school, and so the way it works is, in order to be a priest, um, it takes about six to eight years of education. You have to have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and then you have to go get um, a theology degree from a seminary. So when you enter out of high school, you go to college as a college seminarian. You live in a seminary, you live with other guys, you live with priests, you live with psychologists, you live with a whole formation team. Um, and you have a you have a set schedule for the day. Um, and school is just one of the things that you do, you know, you have your apostolic works in the community. So like we worked with Mother Teresa's sisters in the South Bronx um, when I entered, but then we studied philosophy at Fordham, which is a Jesuit school. Uh, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, if that helps. Uh, Georgetown University is a Jesuit school. Um, and so we, we studied philosophy just as like regular students on campus, but then we lived at a seminary. Um, and so my reason for entering, there was a lot of different components. Um, just thinking about how to start this conversation. Um, one of the big things that was always helpful was, uh, they would ask us when we first knew that God was real in our lives. And I remember being five or six years old and we were in Philadelphia visiting my grandparents at their church. 
uh, for mass and, <clears throat> and, you know, in a Catholic church, you have the sanctuary where the altar is and the behind that you have the tabernacle, right? And tabernacle is the gold box where the blessed sacrament is kept. And that's kind of like a fulfillment of the old Testament Ark of the covenant in which they put, you know, the, the manna, right? The bread, um, the, the 10 commandments and then the, the rod and, for us, you know, the blessed sacrament is the fulfillment of all those things. It's the bread of life. It's the priesthood, the rod of Aaron, right? And then um, Jesus is the word of God. So he's the fulfillment of the commandment. So we repose the blessed sacrament in that in that tabernacle. And behind that tabernacle is usually a big wall and there's usually lights. And it's just meant to be beautiful and kind of just draw you in. And I remember being a kid seeing that and there was a light emanating from behind this wall and behind that wall was like in a room called the sacristy where they would prepare for mass and the, the priests and the deacons and the servers. And I remember being a little kid and, and just being drawn by that light, like a, like a moth drawn to like a light bulb. And I remember asking my mom, like, what, what's back there? Like, what's that glow? And, and why do those, why do they get to go back there? The, the priests and the deacons and my mom said, that's where God is. And that set the whole tone for my life. Like, I just want to be as close to where God is as possible. Wow. So as a kid, like, I was just fascinated by the mass and fascinated by the ritual and fascinated by the sights and the smells and the sounds and, the, and, and just all of it. And so I wanted to be an altar boy. And so, and I did that like through high school, which is kind of weird because usually you drop out, you know, like it's kind of it's for kids, you know, and, but I took it really seriously. And I just, I wanted to be as close as possible to the mystery. And I think in hindsight, a lot of it was um, because I knew that it, it brought an answer. It brought meaning. It brought hope like to the things that I had experienced and suffered and the disappointments and abandonment. Like this was a safe place, a comfortable mm -hmm. place, but it also was transcendent. Um, it pointed to something else. It pointed to something deeper and greater. And in my heart, you know, as a high school boy, like I was very sensitive to like the hookup culture in high school and sex. And, and I, t I took it to heart when I saw other guys treating women like uh, sex objects or, or girls being the victims of that. And, and it was, I just knew that sex was important and sacred and it wasn't meant to be treated cheaply. And I had such great reverence for it that I was willing to forego it uh, because obviously Catholic priests um, live a celibate life. And um, I just wanted to serve. I wanted to give. And it seemed like the priesthood, like the Lord was slowly leading me to that. And then in hindsight, there was a lot of other things going on too, because when you're a 17 year old normal kid who's looking at the priesthood, the young seminarians and the young priests, like they're really excited, you know, and they just, they like bring you in. They want you to be one of them. And I think me and my like searching for male affirmation and, and fatherhood figures and just like wanting to be accepted by men, I think I just soaked it up. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is like I entered seminary and I really didn't know who Jesus was. Like I really didn't, I, I didn't have like a personal encounter with the Lord yet. Hey, Jeff, up to that point, had you gone to church pretty regularly? I mean, what yeah. was your kind of your religious or, or, or spiritual temperature at that point? 
Yeah, so we were Sunday Mass Catholics, and I think which is the bare minimum. And um, as I got into high school, I think sophomore year is when I started going on these summer retreats for young men thinking about the priesthood. And that is when it like it really amped up for me. Um, so you were in strong pursuit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like in like junior, senior year of high school, like I was the guy that was going to be a priest. And that doesn't mean like I was some holy guy. Like I wasn't like, I was still going to parties and, and everything else. But I, and that's kind of, I was living this double life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, at 17, it's hard. Right? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I mean, that's a, that's a hard task. Right. To, like to, I was to still dating, on. you know, like <laughs> I wasn't having sex, but I was, I was dating, you know? And so it was just kind of, awkward <laughs> at um, 17 yeah, everything is a little awkward yeah, throw that on top of it it right. could probably magnifies it right so i entered the seminary and it's just like boom it's like this whole culture you know and i don't think i wasn't in yet you know like i was still i was still interested in pursuing girls which probably isn't helpful you know like i was really into punk rock music like i was 18 in the seminary and i was getting tattoos because like i was I mean, deep down, we know that I was just this angry kid, you know, <laughs> but like, um, so this was right at high school. You yeah, were right, dude, yeah, right yeah, in high school, right right high school. Yeah, okay. I, there's pictures of me wearing like a collar and like the, everything. Um, and you know, thank God, like in his mercy, he let that burn out real quick because I realized by like junior year of college that this, this was not working. Mm-hmm. Like I was not happy. And the reason I wasn't happy was because I was living a double life. So um, around this time, I met this group, which we're going to talk about later. They're the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. And so this is a group of friars, not monks, um, friars who live the life of St. Francis of Assisi, who was not a sissy. <laughs> okay, Assisi. Um, and these guys were like hardcore pounding the streets of the South Bronx in their gray robes with rope belts, shaved heads, beards. Um, they look like something out of the Lord of the Rings. And these guys were living a radical life of poverty, like begging for their food, you know, no technology, no TV, no computers, no cell phones, no microwave, no dishwasher, just like, like bare bones homes that they didn't own, like friaries, old churches that they were dilapidated that they would live in and rebuild. And these guys were happy and holy and joyful and manly and vibrant. And like, they were living it. And I encountered these guys because they studied with us at the seminary. I was just like, who, like, these guys love Jesus, like intensely, but they're so normal. (laughs) Like, they're, they're just so you just want to be around them and the way they look at you man like they just have so much love in their eyes because they're so close to the lord like i want that and and everything is stripped away in these guys lives like they have nothing nothing uh they just they're all for jesus all the time and so i was just like who are these guys and then look at me this double life like i'm in the seminary and i'm going to i'm going to bars underage in the irish section of the bronx like, what am I doing? And so I went to Ireland before my senior year of college in the seminary. And I'm traveling through Ireland by myself. And I get to like the cliffs of, of Moore, which are on the far west coast. And um, and I'm, I'm 
I sit down on the edge and it's pretty much like, as far as I can tell, the only thing across the way to the West is the United States. And I'm sitting there and I have like two choices. It's like, well, I could jump and just call it a day because I don't know how I'm going to turn my life around. Or I can make a promise now that when I go back there, back to the US, I'm going to live a different life. Because I, I mean, there was like an identity crisis, like a conflict. Yeah. Like I'm not, like I'm called to this life, it seems, but I'm not living it. Sure. So when I got back there, that's exactly what I did. Did you know going to Ireland that, that was going to be kind of a um, find yourself moment? That's a great question. I wasn't expecting that. But even while I was in Ireland, I was living the double life. Like I'm going to clubs and I'm going to churches. Okay. You know? Right. And so kind of in that despair moment of that, that duality that you're leaving or living, do you get to that moment on the, the cliffs, the water's edge, making that decision. And obviously we know what decision you made because you're with us today. Thankful. Right. Um, right. because I wouldn't have a co-host if you didn't, um, <laughs> but more importantly, you're here. All right. Oh, sorry right. for that selfish no, no, motivation there. I'll take that. <laughs> so, so you come back. Okay. What happens then? Cause it sounds like the, your life is kind of still a little bit in turmoil. Yeah. So great. So the friars had this event in this city called Catholic underground. And it's this, and we probably might need to talk about this a little bit later today. Like, so with Catholic worship, everything runs to and from the mass, right? And there's other events where it's not mass. Um, it's it's something different. We call it a holy hour. And it's more, it, it might be more familiar to like a Protestant audience. Um, like there's there's praise and worship singing. So we sing, you know, like Chris Tomlin or Matt Marr, you know, Matt Marr's Catholic or just like kind of more contemporary Christian songs that you hear on the radio as kind of like a festival, kind of like a festival of praise, we call it. So it's just like gathering together in prayer with like a, like a band leading worship and we're just praying. And I always thought that was ridiculous. I never got it. And the other seminarians would always drag me to this big event. I mean, just imagine like a thousand young people, young adults in New York City gathered in this big, huge, beautiful New York City church for this praise and worship event and just, you know, emotions are high and, and, and just all the senses are being engaged and, and it's all meant to foster an encounter with the living God who's present on the altar uh, there. And, and I just thought it was all a joke and the guys kept going. And these, these were good guys, the other seminarians, like they were good guys authentically striving to be holy and to have a relationship with Jesus. And I was not interested in that. Um, and I finally assented to go and I got rocked. <laughs> I, got, I got rocked. And every Catholic remembers that moment when they realized that Jesus was real in the Eucharist. And that was, that was that day. Wow. And when that happens, you're like, I got to change my life. And for me, changing my life meant I, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I'm living in community with a bunch of men who are like over the top radical. And it was the friars. It was the Franciscan friars for me. And we could put a link to the community's website in the show notes just so you can yeah, see definitely. what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, and so I called them and I'm like, I, I think I want to be a friar. I think 
I think God might be calling me to be a friar. And um, that just began this year-long process of visiting them, discerning them, them discerning me, because you can want to join, but it's really up to yeah. them, you know, their, sure. their prayer. And it all worked out that when I graduated, um, I was able to apply, and the application process was very rigorous. I mean, I've, I've taken the MMPI and all those other crazy personality tests that we study and the Rorschach and all that stuff. And um, I had to do it twice. I had to do it when I was a teenager for the seminary, and I'd do it again as, for a friar. And it's funny, the psychologist who was a friar, he looked at my results, and he's, he's like, you're angry. <laughs> and I got angry. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean I'm angry? <laughs> you don't know me. You know, you know, what are you talking about? Stupid test. What are you doing? And you just kind of looked at and me your like, face mm. is all red and you're standing yeah, exactly. over him, finch, fist clenched. Yeah. So the friars thought that I should wait a year. They just thought I, I had stuff I needed to work on. But that, that psychologist who was a friar, he brought me back in and he knew my whole story about my dad. Um, and he's like, tell me about your mom. So I told him about my mom. Hmm. And he, he got real serious. He's, he's dead now. Um, he said, you're an orphan and you need a home. And that, like, he was right. Like I'd been running and searching and I hadn't found it in the seminary. And they, they welcomed me in. I was 21. I was the youngest in my class of 15 guys who ranged from all different walks of life. I mean, we had a company commander from the U.S. Army who was an infantry commander in Iraq. <laughs> like, he's seen guys die, you know. And then, you know, me, this 21-year-old kid. And uh, I can't even begin to describe to this audience what that life is like. But we kind of compare it to when it comes to like the priesthood and joining a religious community like this is kind of like joining the Navy SEALs. Like you're in the chapel five hours a day. You're barely eating on some days. You only have like the clothes on your back and a couple of books and maybe a few changes in underwear. <laughs> like. So Jeff, was that feeling like, yeah, this is exactly where I should be? Or was it like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? That's a great question. It was, I really want to be here. Mm. It wasn't either of those. It's, I really want to be here. And that's the whole thing. It, it, as I grew in my relationship with the Lord and my desire for holiness, my desire to live this really radical life, it was all about me. And what I came to discover once I actually became a friar and took a new name, I had a religious name, Brother Aloysius, after St. Aloysius Gonzaga, and um, like Gonzaga, the big school, the D1 school. Um, not that I named myself after a D1 school, if you're wondering. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but I and realized favorite that, to win the basketball yeah, the tournament this year. So right, just, okay. just throw that in for our perfect basketball fans out there. There you go. Um, I realized that it was all about me because I was still trying to make up for what was lacking. And if I could just be this friar who like in the Catholic church world is like a celebrity, like 
I will have arrived. Like I will have undone all this stuff from my childhood. Fix everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because deep down, I was just running from these feelings of insecurity, inadequacy, inferiority, um, low self-worth, unlovableness. And so, and, and some really distorted ideas about emotions and sexuality and how to be holy. You know, I wasn't pursuing holiness by virtue. I was pursuing holiness by repression. And you can't live this, that kind of life with all that action going on because you, yeah. you will burn out quick. And that's exactly what I, I had a panic attack. I had a panic attack as a friar. And I, was, I had just started counseling um, with a clinical psychologist in the Bronx who specialized in priests and religious. And the community was that, like, go ahead. Jeff, sorry, was that, was that part of the program or is that something that you did voluntarily? Yeah, great question. So now in the Friars, it is part of the program, but at that time it wasn't. It was a voluntary thing. So okay. a number of us were going to this woman um, who we're going to have Father Isaac on in a couple of weeks. He's a member of this religious community that I'm talking about. And, and he also saw the same psychologist okay. that I did. And good. He's, good. Yeah. So he'll, he'll kind of fill it all out a lot more. Um, and yeah, like I had to go, man. I had to leave. I really wanted to stay. But the reasons I wanted to stay were because I need this. Like this is, I, I've taken on, this on as my identity because I, without this, I'm nothing. Mm. And that process of leaving was devastating. How old were you when you left? 24. Like, you're, still, you're still a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went through counseling for about two years. And some of these sessions I had with this psychologist were like four hours long. I don't know how she did it. And then, like, she'd finish me and another guy would come in. You know, one of the guys still in the community. Hey, bro, what's up, man? Oh, yeah, I'm here for Dr. So-and-so. Okay, cool. Was that, was that planned? Four hours planned? Did you know that going in? I don't in, know. Or was it just I don't like, know, dude. I don't just, know. We're rolling. We're not going to stop. I, I think it's, she just, she just went for it. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. But it saved my life. Like, I can't even, the person who I was, how I used to think and feel and act, I can't even fake that. Like I had a total rebirth. Like What's I from? cannot even. Was it the counseling? Was it the life experience? Did you have an aha moment? Like how'd that come about? It was the counseling, man. It was, mm. it was all of it. It was, we used to joke like Jedi master Yoda. is the perfect clinician with his line. You must unlearn what you have learned. And I had so many distorted ideas about what it meant to be a Christian in terms of our humanity. Uh, like I said before, I, was, I wasn't pursuing virtue, I was pursuing repression. So, um, you know, hate, anger, sadness, desire, like these, these emotions, like these were bad. These could not be felt. These, these stood in the way of holiness, you know, and, and it created this intensity that wasn't actually helpful or good because <laughs> uh, it wasn't healthy. It was, it was too extreme. Um, I, I, there was no such thing as moderation or balance for me. It was all or nothing. It, there's, it's black or white, you know, it's just it's dichotomous thinking. And that's how I approached <laughs> humanity, that my own humanity. And that just, so that had to end. And then 
those deep seated feelings of, of low self-worth and inadequacy and all those things that I talked about, like it was through the therapeutic relationship with this, who happened to be a woman, which touched a lot of my maternal affirmation, affection needs. Um, it was through that therapeutic relationship and, and Heinz Kohut talks about this a lot. Like the relationship itself is the vehicle of healing because the client discovers oneself and, and revisits the developmental milestones that were missed or not adequately met through the relationship with the clinician. And that's exactly what happened. Sure. So you, I mean, in one sense, you could call it a psychic rebirth, which I know sounds kind of new agey, but like I, I went through the developmental stages again, emotionally in the context of my counseling to, to help my emotional age catch up with my biological age. I imagine there was probably a lot of healing in that process from your past. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. And let me tell you, like, I spent a lot of time on my knees during that time because it was awful. Like, I've never suffered so much in my life than when I did during that process. And she promised me, like, you're going to suffer. But it's in, the, like, the suffering... Like that's the vehicle to glory, right? Like right. At Sunday mass yesterday was the transfiguration story, right? Of the Jesus going up the mountain. It's like that whole story begins with Jesus promising that he's going to suffer and die. Mm -hmm. And what do the disciples say? Not you, Lord. He's, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like you're thinking as men, as men think. And like that's, so that was my experience. Like it was, the healing was born through the suffering. Uh, and, and, you know, I entered religious life to become a priest and, and as a Franciscan friar, like suffering is like, it's like part of the, it's part of the, part of the job responsibility. Yeah, man. yeah you're going to suffer yeah. on behalf, like in union with Christ, you're, you're suffering for the world, like the fasting and the penances and for, for the sins of the world, for those who do not do penance, who do not, who do not know Christ, who do not believe and do not hope in him. And so we, we take that on ourselves in union with Christ. And like, I'm on my face, like weeping. Like, this is really hard, Lord, take this from me. Like that, that was my agony in the garden experience. And um, it's, it was, the new life was born from the struggle, it was born from the death. Yeah, it, it, and that's often the case, that element of surrender, mm. that element of brokenness, that element of, of, I just can't do this on my own. I give yeah. up. Yeah, I'm powerless. You know, I see that time and time again. It sounds like you had that experience in a, in a real, real impactful way, which I'm guessing kind of directed your paths to this current trajectory, right? Yes. I mean, it had yes. to have some impact on you when you saw what counseling did for you and how impactful it was. I'm guessing a seed was planted at that time. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, the style of counseling that we got was... Um, there was a lot of homework to do and it was a lot of reading. So we, and she taught a class to the friars that was like a 22 week course, which was the basis of the counseling approach, which is these two Catholic psychiatrists um, who obviously were Freudian because they, you know, studied in the forties and fifties. Um, but they applied the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and his understanding of the emotions um, and the will and reason and freedom. And uh, they applied that to psychology and, and kind of created this approach, this theory, um, which was really popular at that time. It's kind of died out now, but 
a lot of us are trying to bring it back um, because every single page that we read is just like, holy cow, these people are spot on. So we studied all of that. So not only was I a client, but I was also a student of my psychologist. And so when I was finishing up, she said two things to me. She said, one day you're going to be a clinician, um, but your biggest trial in life is going to be allowing God the Father to be the primary affirmer of your being. And she's mm -hmm. like, you're not going to be able to be a husband or a father or a counselor until you're able to allow God to be first. Not the exclusive only love in your life, but to run to him first when you are feeling unloved, inadequate, insecure, whatever, right? And so that's kind of been the journey. And yeah. after the counseling, I, I definitely faltered quite a bit, uh, especially like beginning to even be open to the idea of marriage. Like I definitely made a lot of mistakes. Um, so before we before we go there, I, I just think that's an interesting perspective of what you just said. Okay. That, you know, I think before that counseling that God was exclusively, and not that he couldn't fulfill every desire and want and need and, and brokenness in your life, but like you said, it, it was probably not on this element of surrender and letting God do that, but wanting right. for your own selfish reasons. And then that perspective of God still remains that authority, that central love, but it's through that love and the gift that he gives you that allows you to spill out and pour out into others, whether it's being a husband, a father, a mm -hmm. counselor, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I think that is much more of a healthy outward look than what you went into this journey on a very selfish. And, and I think yes. there's an element of that in some, on probably everybody's story that, it may begin with selfish goals and objectives and tendencies. But I think once God gets his hands around us, it changes that perspective often. So yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful uh, story of how you kind of had that transformation. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a spot on summary and that's exactly what it is. is that counseling skills. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. You taught me well. Right. I learned. <laughs> so, so I do want to get into to marriage because I know that your wife is such a key part of your journey and, mm -hmm. and where you are. And, and this is a piece that I don't know personally. And, and we've known each other probably well over two years now, I'm guessing. Right. Um, I don't know your story and how that interaction occurred, but I do know that it's been impactful, extremely impactful in your life. So share a little bit, that coming, kind of coming out of, of this transition and then maybe finding some love. Right. So great. Um, <clears throat> so I finished up counseling around 2012 and just kind of was thrown into the world. And, you know, like I had to learn how to get a job and just all these life skills I didn't really necessarily get because of my immaturity, but also just entering the seminary right out of high school. And so for you say years, job, you mean like the secular type of yeah, jobs? Yeah. Yeah. Like I was selling, right? I was selling ADT like door to door, you know, so that <laughs> let me tell you, it's really hard to get someone to open the door and then let you into their house and sell <laughs> yeah. you something, you know, like, like especially just, when I, you're telling them they need security systems. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was quite the hustle. And, um, you know, I was learning how to date and that was a whole mess. And um, I still hadn't yet really, really put into practice kind of the things that I learned with counseling in terms of the relationship. So that that was difficult. I was actually engaged to another woman before I even started seeing Daniela, my wife. 
And thank God that that woman had the courage to call it off because I was just not ready. And uh, I went to Al-Anon for a year after she called it off because I realized that I still had a lot of the tendencies that would be remarkably similar to adult children of alcoholics. Right. So do you went you went because of your own desire, not it, not that she was an alcoholic. No, or no, right, or right, yeah. Like you, went, you went because you felt that that could be beneficial to you. Yeah, yeah. I just felt like I had a lot of those tendencies, um, codependency type. Exactly. Stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that that was a life changing experience as well, and it's just like all part of the story because, like, I needed to be comfortable with people who are different than me, and I always felt threatened by people who are anti-Catholic or which is interesting being at Liberty, um, non, you know, non-Catholic or just like living a life that's not the gospel. Like I always felt threatened. And, and what I realized in Al-Anon was like, because it's my own insecurity, it has nothing to do with the other person. Sure. It's like their choices are somehow threatening me. And, and I realized that like, you can't really live a happy life like that. <laughs> yeah. You can't really be an integrated part of the human race with other people if you're just feeling threatened all the time. Right. So that, that was a huge experience. And I think that prepared me to live uh, interdependently as opposed to codependently. And so I lived the single life really well. And a friend of mine invited me to this documentary screening on women's health um, and natural family planning, which we Catholics love and the dangers of the birth control pill, which we Catholics love to talk about. And I was like, I wasn't expecting this, but in hindsight, that's a great place to meet women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a buddy of mine who was putting this on at NYU and I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll go. And in walks Daniela. She's like the first person I saw. And I had met Daniela a couple of years previously. She was dating a friend of mine. Um, met her at a Super Bowl party. She has no recollection of meeting me at all. Wow, that's a great first impression. I know, but I definitely did not. Okay, so, so we know who forget. made the impression. Oh, not, yeah. Not Dude, she, she did. So, you know, my wife is Dominican, so she's got like the dark features, the long, dark hair, and just she's like tall. And, 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 and she was wearing all white. It was a Super Bowl party, and I think the Giants were playing, and she worked at Yankee Stadium. And so she was wearing, like, a Yankee stuff. And she's Dominican baseball. I mean, come on. And I just remember, like, this radiant woman walking in, and she was just wearing all white. And I just, like, just this glow. And I'm like, who the heck is that? <laughs> the, the heavens, uh, the choirs. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and at that time, like, I'd only been out for not long, you know? So I'm, like, still integrating in my own brokenness because most guys don't struggle with this like with women and everything but i did obviously you know i had a lot of issues so um you know father isaac will talk all about that like he's normal i i was not normal um and and so no memory meeting fast forward to this documentary screening and it was that was pentecost sunday that what was the time frame jeff between that first meeting at the party and, and oh, this three years oh wow big gap yeah. And like, I maybe saw her like once or twice after that. And I had one conversation with her after that Super Bowl party. And it was about counseling. It was about these Catholic practitioners that I was telling you about that formed the basis of my therapy because she was reading one of their books. Okay. Um, and I was like, wow, no way. 
And then I didn't like see her talk to her for like two more years. And then, so I'm at this documentary screening, it's Pentecost Sunday. And like, you could tell something's going and, um, we married exactly one year later. Wow. So, so the second impression was a little bit better. Yeah. I, this guy's was Pentecost. <laughs> Probably the Holy spirit was helping you out. On <laughs> That's that the one. only, <laughs> tell you what, not, not on my own, man. So my wife, we talked about this before. And I think it's really interesting. My wife is from Washington Heights, which is where the Broadway show and movie in the Heights yeah. takes place. Right. And my wife's story is fascinating because she's the youngest of three. There was five of them living in a one bedroom apartment in the hood. And no one believes that my wife's from New York City because she doesn't have the accent at all. I don't know how she doesn't. Um, but, but she's uh, born and raised. In New born York and City. raised. Her parents okay. are from DR and she's born and raised in the Heights. But here's the thing. Um, my wife, when she was conceived, her mom had no idea that she was pregnant for several months. And Daniela's mom realized that she was pregnant with Daniela when Daniela's mom was 20 weeks pregnant. And at that time, things were not good at home by any means. And so Daniela's mom went to Planned Parenthood and had her first consultation and thinking about aborting. Yeah. And then had the scheduled the appointment to have the abortion procedure done oh, wow. a couple of days later within that time. At 21 weeks, Daniela's mom went into labor. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Extremely premature. Oh yeah. She spent five months in the hospital. That was 1989. So she was kind of a bit of a miracle. Wow. God saved her from what could have been. Yeah. Wow. So, so needless to say, my wife is a pretty outspoken um, pro-life advocate. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's my wife. And that's an amazing story. And, and you guys currently um, have been married for how long? Uh, it'll be seven years in June. All right. That was a test, by the way. So... You know, my math is really (laughs) real good. And, and, and tell me about the children. Sophia just turned six. Uh, She's exactly like me, which is a nightmare. Scary. Um, Oh gosh. Um, We had one, we had a miscarriage Mm -hmm. and you know what? I just want to throw a bone to the miscarriage community. I, I think it needs to be talked about more because we, we were able to deliver the baby at home and hold the child in the mm. like eight weeks. Oh, wow. We were able to hold the child in our hands. And Sophia was there. And Sophia was like two. And like we, we had a funeral. We had a burial. The friars came and did a funeral mass. And we, mm. and um, like that whole experience just made all of that so impactful and the grieving process so simple. Uh, because mm. it was tangible, you know, like we had the child, we were able to do the rituals and, and just all the things that are, that we need to do to grieve, you know? Sure. To honor that child. And yeah. 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 And it's a part of like our family, like Sophia, like understands, you know, like we named the child, like just part of Sure. Um, and then, so a month after the miscarriage, Daniela got pregnant with Claire, 
uh, Claire just turned three and Claire is just like her mommy. (laughs) (laughs) Just easygoing, super chill, just likes to snuggle, like, you know, um, with Sophia, everything's a fight, um, and everything's got to be the way it is. And Sophia is just devastatingly intelligent. Not that I am, but, um, she's just really sharp and nothing escapes her. She's just very observant, very receptive, very aware of her emotions, like high emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot. Of, but the interesting thing about Claire is, um, we were going to, uh, so we had the midwife and all that other stuff, you know, just to make you feel uncomfortable. And um, we uh, we didn't make it to the birthing center. Oh, no. Yeah. So Daniela was laboring at home. And what I didn't know was she was keeping, like, the screams down so as not to scare Sophia. So, like, Sophia and I are in the bedroom watching Star Wars, of course, while Daniela's of out course, there laboring. Yeah. You know, yeah. And... um like, oh man, it's gonna be a long time. And I'm like timing the contractions. Like we're nowhere near, like these are eight minute apart contractions. We're, we're gonna be here for a while. <laughs> then all of a sudden, Daniela just lets it rip, man. And she's like, we gotta go. I'm like, what are you talking about? And her water broke. Oh, wow. Okay, so, you know, we, we've got some time. Like, all right, so I'm packing up. I'm like brushing my teeth. I'm such an idiot. And um, getting Sophia ready. Contraction number two crowning oh my goodness yeah so it's like all right we're doing this so i'm like i called the midwife she's like get ready to deliver that baby i'll see you when you get here i'm like call 911 i call 911 i'm on the phone 911 i'm i'm out the window screaming to the neighbor who was supposed to be on hand there but it was like 10 30 at night screaming out the window get over here get over here on the phone 911 contraction number three Baby, so much is, for not scaring your daughter, by the way. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah forget that. <laughs> Contraction number three Claire is on the couch. Get out of here. You delivered on the couch. You delivered the baby. I, I didn't. Well, I was I mean, out I the mean, window you, screaming. You, <laughs> so Danielle delivered her own baby. Dan- yeah, so Daniela, like, th- there's the baby on the couch. Oh, my so goodness. I go over and like umbilical cord is wrapped around Claire's head, and it was like. <gasps> Dude, it was crazy. It was like instinct kicked in. I'm like, I know what to do. And it was like the easiest thing I've ever done. So did you snip it? No, no. I just just unwrapped, unwrapped, unwrapped. And um, the police were there within like three minutes. And then like a bunch of firefighters and and all these EMTs. There were like 12 people in our little home, you know, within five minutes. And there's my wife, like in all our glory. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, dude. I did not know that story at all. Yeah. And that was during 500. So I had a great story to tell Dr. Simmons uh, oh, sure. you know, that next week, you know. Um, <laughs> yep. And um, what's the future hold for children? Uh, Danielle is pregnant right now. Right. Due, due in September. Congratulations again. Yep. Made in New York just as our last uh, okay. sign off, you know, before we moved away <laughs> to Virginia. <laughs> leaving your mark right that's right so so let's let's go to current you're in virginia just share a little bit kind of what what your goals and aspirations are and kind of where you you see the lord leading you in this endeavor so that's a great question we moved down here to be closer to my mom Mm -hmm. and the more 
since I've been down here and meeting clients, like it, it seems like the struggle is real to having a family without help. Mm. And we moved down here because we needed help. Like our marriage needed help. Sure. And so my mom is still down here in Southern Maryland and she's only about an hour from us. We're in Fredericksburg, Virginia now. And, uh, I think it, for us, it was like, do we want to stay in New York and do my residency and not, and, and suffer the possibility of not being able to move? Like if hours don't transfer, like, for example, if you're doing your residency in New York, you can't move to Virginia. The hours won't transfer. If your supervisor is a psychologist, which mine was. So we really had to make a lot of decisions. And I think Daniela and her wisdom knew that she needed help if I was going to be full-time counselor and she's homeschooling and she also has a small part-time job from home that she does just we need this and our marriage needed it man like our marriage hasn't has been rough i mean i'm a rough person to be married to as you could probably imagine yeah i mean you're rough to co-host so i can only imagine yeah. uh marriage what that's like for poor, poor daniela so <laughs> moving down here um was all daniela's idea and she my wife's interesting, man. Like she has this relationship with the Lord where she just like, I'm going to do this thing. And because she knows that it's just what she's supposed to do. What wow. That clarity, that discernment, yeah, what the Lord wants. Um, it's, it's interesting because New York born and raised New Yorkers. I'm talking New York city, like you said, Bronx, Brooklyn, you know, born and raised. There's an attachment there to the city. And, oh, and yeah, you know that you know what that feels like, and, yeah. and so for her to 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 just be willing to get up and move to a location that's not at all like New York City, right? Right. right. I think is is really a sign of of her obedience and and what you guys are hearing for for the future, and it's and and wise that you guys listened and obeyed and and make sure you do what you need to do for your family. Yeah, that that's really well said. Robert. And I think that's, that's exactly what happened. And it is a lot for my wife because I mean, her being Dominican is very obviously is, is very important to her. And we don't have that culture here. And the New York city piece, like she, she doesn't have a driver's license. And I tried teaching her how to drive and that became very obvious very quickly that that wasn't good for our marriage. <laughs> so, like, she she still doesn't know how to drive, you know. She's like thirty two years old, yeah. um, and now we're down here. We're making it work, uh, but man, our stress levels have gone down so much, and like we just and you know this is the thing. Like I I don't know, like we're gonna go do this thing, and God's gonna bless it. Like I don't think that's wise, and. So I haven't yet figured out like, okay, God, what are you doing in bringing us here? Or did you bring us here at all? Was this just our idea and it just sure. happens to be working out? You know, I haven't yet been able to pinpoint, but I, I do see the fruit, you know, a tree by its fruit, right? Um, the kids are happier, we're happier. The pace of life is significantly slower, which- That's nice. You know, um, we made a good move. And I'm working now, a resident at a private practice owned by a really awesome married couple. He went to Liberty. There's another, the other resident there is also Catholic. That's how I kind of met this crew. And 
Dude, just real quick, my first day to work. Yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna say, why don't you just share that? Because that's an amazing story about how to be a, a, a great leader and a great boss. Oh my gosh, dude. So uh, just a, a real quick thing, like when I was in the city before I went to Liberty, I was working at a bus company owned by um a Catholic guy, and he had this multi-million dollar bus company, like the big fifty-four passenger buses and we had met through different pro-life things and he's like, why don't you get a real job and come work for me? Why don't you run my maintenance department? I'm like, I don't even know how to change the oil on my car, which I still don't know how to do by the way. And, um, I was there for like six years and I learned so much from that guy. Um, and I learned he was like a father figure in so many ways because there were so many life lessons. I just didn't know. And he had to beat me over the head pretty hard, quite regularly but he kept me around and and I grew because of that experience. So I just had it in my mind that like a boss is like, he's he's in a, a formator <laughs> of, of men, you know? And so my first day, on my first day to the job, there's this big lunch to welcome Jeff. I didn't have any clients on the schedule that day, thank God, but like everyone's in for this lunch. And I'm like five minutes away from the office and I'm on this narrow road there and there's a big truck coming on the other lane. So I give him a little space and I'm learning real quick that roads in Virginia are not like roads in New York. Like there's no like nice shoulder or anything. Like it's just a ravine, just a straight drop off. And so I drop off and pop my tire. Like the, the tire pressure sensor went from like 36 to zero in like half a second. (laughs) Like you think, you know, (laughs) so here I am waffling around, you know? So I like, I pull up and who do I call? I call my boss. Yeah. Like I, I just got here. I don't know anybody. And there's this meeting and like, not only do I need help, but I also need to tell him I'm going to miss the lunch, you know? Uh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> dude, he shows up in three minutes. I just got off the phone with a tow company. Who I just like, I just found the first one I could. Um, he's there. He waits for me with the tow and he's like, all right, let's tow it to my shop. Jeff, I'm going to get you. This is on us. This is a sign-on bonus. This is, you know, but, and he communicated this through his words, but it was much more strongly communicated by his actions mm-hmm. and his tenderness. But he said, I see you as one of my sons. Mm. And see, here's the thing. Like, those are the words I continue to long to hear. Mm-hmm. That I, I continue to be very sensitive to experiencing. And even... I struggle with relationships with men, like even with you, like there's always something inside of me. It's like, he's going to reject me now, which of course is bogus. Yeah. Yeah. We made it 34 episodes and yeah, a lot of can, other life right. journeys. If I was going to reject so there, you, but there's always at least five, right? <laughs> Episode five, somewhere around there. There's always this piece, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I'm aware of it. I know what to do with it. I've, you know, the counseling experience, I know sure. where it fits in and how to, you know, navigate that and everything. But that's always my knee jerk reaction is I'm going to get, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be fired, you know, whatever it else. And it's just like, and here's another guy who's shown love and, and and maybe that fatherly kind of affection. And the only logical thing is he's going to abandon me like every other man in my life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know? And so that, that's been really, that, that just whole thing. And you know what? Like this, the other side of that story is like, I wasn't surprised because this is mm-hmm. just how God has worked in my life all yeah. the time. Like yeah. 
Father Isaac, I'm sure when he comes on, will tell stories about like the friars, like they lived completely on God's providence and like the miracles that happen with money or food or when their car breaks down and the person that shows up is always the person most in need of an encounter with God. And then they, they're like begging for a sign, like they're on their way to kill themselves. And then they see this stranded monk on the side of the road. And like, that's the sign that God sent to tell them it happens <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so like this, this is just like, this, this is my life, man. Like I, yeah. if I'm an orphan, quote unquote, which I'm, I'm not, but going back to that story, like, then God has to provide for me. He promised yeah. it. It's in his word. And so uh, this has been my life. This has been my life. And so, and, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just gonna say, and, and it sounds like he has. He's yes. brought what I call, I call my human angels. Hmm. You know, there's people into my life at the right exact time, the right exact moment for exactly what God needed me to get. And, and your story is riddled with those. And I, hmm. I love that because, very much it sounds like this has been a journey of searching um you know and an exploration of self right and through that process you've had people in and out of your life for seasons or you know some longer than others obviously um but have have really helped direct you on that journey and and i could just say that uh, i mean i i don't wouldn't call myself a human angel by any means but i am honored and humbled mm. to be a part of this journey with you for whatever little piece it is, um, because this doesn't happen without you. Um, right. and, and my Liberty experience doesn't happen without you to the sure. degree it has. Um, and I've created it, not only a colleague, but a true friend. And so yes. that I am grateful and, um, I'm honored by your story. Like I said, it's been encouraging, it's been fulfilling and it, and it's created in me a better person. So mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for, for just joining me on this journey um, that we're on. And, and who knows how God's going to continue to use either of us. And hopefully he continues to use us together because I do enjoy working with you. And I hope our audience sees that and hears that and feels that. So thank you, Jeff, uh, for yeah, being man. a friend and a colleague. Yeah. Yeah, well said and totally agree. And I received that. And I know that it's true. Yeah, I'll, I'll hang with you for a little bit longer. I'm like, <laughs> we'll get to 40 or beyond. Who knows? Yeah. A anything else you want to share? Um, and thank you for your vulnerability and just being open today. Uh, and what a remarkable story. And I, I can't wait to see how God's going to continue to use you. You know, I do, because I'm a pretty loudmouth, obnoxious Catholic here on our Sure, sure. And we, we, and we can tolerate that. Yeah. But yeah. I have to say that, you know, and we don't have time to tell these stories, but my experience as a Catholic at Liberty has been amazing. And like, I have two guys right now, one of which is another former friar who are looking at counseling programs and they're really leaning heavily on Liberty. And I'm like, I can't sell it enough. And that's the first, well, how what was your experience as a Catholic there? And I'm like, I'll tell you what my experience has been. It's been amazing. Like, look at the opportunities that have been given. And, and it's not like, I feel like I'm a liability sometimes. <laughs> like, and, and I mean, my first day on campus, Dr. Myers and I, I was really nervous and I, I said something in class, someone was qu quoting scripture, uh, we we're talking about the emotions and, and she was answered, she was talking to me and this is 505 and, and, uh, 
she finishes and I, and I respond. I'm like, oh, and just in case anyone thought Catholics don't read the Bible, that was Ephesians 4.26. And, yeah. and there was this dude, like, just imagine in 505, 50-something people, everyone goes, ooh. I was like, oh, God. Oh, boy, you're pegged now. Yeah, but, like, yeah. what I was just scared, you know? Like, yeah. I was, I, my threat was up. I was being defensive. Like, I just thought I was, this is my first time on campus and i just have it in my mind that evangelicals think that we worship mary and, and that we're idol worshipers and we're all going to hell or whatever else which is all total and i'll gladly have a conversation with anybody about that and so the class took a break and i went to dr myers and i apologized and i'm like i'm just really scared being here and he's like i understand he said but that that's not there are other catholics here and you're not going to find that here yeah you're not going to find that hostility that you think and when I went back for group, I mean, next to my relationship with you and a Dr. Kirk and Dr. Emhoff, I would say the relationships that I built during group uh, and the conversations and the prayer time and just everything was just like, I'm really glad to be here at Liberty as a Catholic. And I feel really like this is where I'm supposed to be. Um. So I'm I'm honored to be a Liberty graduate and to be part of this program. And, and I hope, you know, to be involved moving forward, whether it's a PhD or through the podcast or whatever, you know. Yeah, I agree. And you'll always just be my brother. Yeah, Catholic man. Or not, right? At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. <laughs> that's right. Really. Well, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it again. Um, and just again, thank you for being honest and, and open and vulnerable and sharing your story. Um, I, I love it. I think it's a great story. And I think there's power in our testimony and power in our story. And I hope that uh, God just takes this message and just delivers it to the right ears, to the right person that needs to hear it. And it'll just give him glory and honor. So, Jeff, thank you. Listeners, thank you for continuing to be loyal. We greatly appreciate it. Without you, we're not really doing anything except talking to each other. So thank you for, for being listeners and giving us a, a forum to share. With that, God bless and have a great day.